This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Kate Bullock discusses her new book, Spinster, Making a Life of One's Own. Then PW editorial director Jim Milliot recaps the recent book con. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. So I am running thin on nonfiction. Not a lot of big books this week. Not a lot of big books this week. We've got J.J. Virgin's Sugar Impacted Diet Cookbook at number eight, 150 low sugar recipes to help you lose up to 10 pounds in just two weeks. This is coming on the heels of her previous book about low sugar, basically a health book. And this is the cookbook companion to it. J.J. Right. Virgin is always on the bestseller list with her with her cookbooks. Number 16 is Jamie Tukarski, If You Feel Too Much, Thoughts on Things Found and Lost and Hoped For. Uh, and this is based on a story she wrote, To Write Love on Her Arms. Uh, and it's about helping a friend through her struggle with drug addiction, depression, and self-injury. And this is at number 16 on our list. And then we have from the star of Parks and Recreation, Nick Offerman, Gumption, relighting the torch of freedom with America's gutsiest troublemakers. And this is on the heels of his last year's bestseller, Paddle Your Own Canoe. So it's a humor book, and it's at number 15. And that's what we have on the nonfiction bestseller list. Well, things are a little more exciting over in fiction. We have a new number one, which is Radiant Angel by Nelson DeMille. Uh, it's a, the seventh John Corey novel, and uh, DeMille's thrillers routinely make it to the top of the list. Um, John Corey is a former NYPD detective, now working as a contract agent for the federal government, uh, and he's specifically part of the diplomatic surveillance group, so he gets to keep an eye on the comings and goings of uh, government bigwigs. And uh, he's doing a, Nelson DeMille is doing a 10-city author tour to support this title, and his fans have placed it handily at number one. Wow. And then uh, a little bit further down the list, at number four, Clive Cussler with Piranha. Um, Cussler, you know, routinely debuts in the top ten. This is no surprise for him. Um, And uh, this is the tenth book in his Oregon Files series, which is co-authored with Boyd Morrison. And uh, it's... it's, uh, Another thriller. It's a Clive Cussler book. Mm, right. uh, you know, there's always uh, a lot of ocean going. It's that's sort of his his signature thing. Uh, and in this case, the Oregon is a, a tramp steamer uh, that is covered with a patina of rust, and underneath that is a state of the art battleship bristling with high-tech surface and undersea weaponry. So uh, every, everything is there for exciting adventures on the high seas. And uh, we, we say that uh, action scenarios take second place to a blockbuster concept. In this case, it's giant glowing green crystals in a secret cave that power a, quote, neutrino telescope, unquote, capable of seeing anything anywhere on the planet. Oh, wow. uh, lovely little science fictional touch there. Right. And series fans <laughs> will have a lot of fun with this one. Great. Uh, going down the list a little bit further, uh, number 11 is Our Souls at Night by Kent Haruf. And uh, this is a book that we call a gripping and tender novel. We gave it a starred review. Uh, and uh, it's it's about a lonely widow, a sweet love story, a deep friendship. And uh, when we, we say that Haruf, who died in 2014, mm. uh, returns to the landscape and daily life of the county in Colorado where his previous novels were set, and that this book uh, has a stunning sense of all that has passed and the precious importance of the days that remain. Right. So it's a, a fitting capstone to the career. Sure. 
Um, and then uh, at number 13, we've Make Something Up, Stories You Can't Unread. This is Chuck Palahniuk's uh, first short story collection. Oh, I'm actually wow. surprised there hasn't been one before this. Uh, and these stories, our review says they feature his signature humor, horror, and grit, including a story starring Tyler Durden, famous from Fight Club, of course. Ah, right. uh, we say the collection is essential for Palahniuk fans and will likely win him some new ones. Uh, and there are stories dealing with fire, bodily fluids, malfunctions, critiques of material society, bestiality, a bewitched tennis ball, and a murder at a Burning Man type retreat. So a little bit of something for everyone there. Right. Uh, If that's not grim enough for you, you can go down to number 19 and The Water Knife by Paolo Bacigalupi. This is uh, an author who started out in the science fiction side uh, and has crept over the line into... uh, he, he's always written about the near future and environmental collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this book is just, I think, a little bit nearer and a little bit more on the grim realism side. Uh, so it's being uh, published by Knopf mm-hmm. in, instead of Science Fiction Publisher. We gave right. it a starred review. Say it's an ambitious genre-dissolving thriller and a timely cautionary tale about extreme water shortages that have made the southwestern United States a dystopia. So wow. obviously very very, very timely. Uh, and our review says, with elements of Philip K. Dick and Charles Bowden, this epic visionary novel should appeal to a wide audience. He's doing a big author tour and they're printing 150,000 copies wow. in the first printing. So Amazing. And this is this seems to be a thriller, I guess, if they're comparing it to that. Um, it, it is, and it's not. Uh, you know, if, if it were science fiction, then I'd say it's about the concept, mm-hmm. right, primarily, uh, that it's exploring this concept of a, of a water shortage. And if it were a thriller, it would be about um, sort of tension and, and action. Uh, but it's also very much a human story, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a, likewise a feature of some of the best science fiction. And uh, it's uh, really about people who are, who are stuck in this situation of uh, dystopic level mm-hmm. drought right. in the southwestern U.S., uh, and it's uh, you know, there's 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 a lot going on. Great. And uh, you know, a lot of uh, books that we gave starred reviews to are showing up on the list. Uh, Twenty-eight. We have *The Rocks* by mm-hmm. Peter Nichols, as uh, the author of *Voyage to the North Star*. This is totally the opposite end of the literary spectrum. It's the perfect beach read, a romantic story set in a rich beach town on Mallorca mm. called Calamarsopa. And we say that though you may not get sand between its easy-to-turn pages, you'll feel as though you have. Wow, nice. So, uh, when, once you need a break from the dystopias, right. you can, you can <laughs> right. hang out with this one and uh, relax a little bit. And finally, I just wanted to note, uh, every once in a while on the hardcover fiction list, we get hardcover graphic novels. Uh, and, and number 42 is Thor Volume 1, Goddess of Thunder. This is the first one starring the female Thor. Uh, oh, the, wow. it, it, it's, it's been uh, talked about for quite some time right. now, this, uh, this particular shift in the Marvel Comics universe. Uh, and Thor is a title, and whosoever wields the hammer becomes Thor. And so uh, yeah, this, this is, uh, oh, this is how readers will find out how a woman came to be the one to pick up the hammer and the title um, and it's uh, it's great to see it on the bestseller list there's been a lot of buzz about this and I, I hope it goes far fantastic so that's what we've got a long long list lots of good beach reads lots of good airplane reads and a couple of things to keep you up at night so something for everyone yeah sounds great I'm Rose Fox and I'm Mark Rotella and this is Publishers Weekly Radio next up Kate Bullock tells us about living la vida sola we'll be right back I'm Kabir Segal author of Coint, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Kate Bollock on the line. Her new book is Spinster, Making a Life of One's Own. Hey, Kate, so glad you could join us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So your book, Spencer, began as a feature you wrote for The Atlantic uh, titled All the Single Ladies. I mean, did you think when you first wrote uh, about deciding not to marry that this would resonate with so many people? I really didn't. Uh, You know, I wrote that. So that was um, the assignment. I got it in the summer of 2011 is when I started writing that story. And it was assigned to me as a story about contemporary marriage trends and how they were changing and how things were being changed by the economy. 
And they asked me to write the story in the first person, drawing on my experiences as an unmarried woman at the time, 38 years old. And as I started reporting and researching the story, I realized, you know, the the reason I'm unmarried has nothing to do with men's worsening economic prospects, which was like basically what the, the article, you know, that they were looking for. And instead, I'm part of this massive demographic shift of where we have more single and unmarried people than ever before. And that's a much more complicated story. And the one I decided to write that resonated with me. And I had been thinking about single women as an historical archetype since around the year 2000 when I first found one of the women I write about in the book. And so it's a a topic I've lived with for a long time. And uh, I didn't, you know, but when I when I wrote the article itself for The Atlantic, I was just in that very kind of panicked freelancer state of mind. Like, will I meet my deadline? Mm-hmm. Will I finish the story? Will anybody read it? You know, who knows? Um, so historically, there was not a lot of distinction between single and unmarried. And now there's there's quite a big distinction. So tell us a little bit about that. Oh, what, I, what do you mean exactly by that question? It just, you know, for example, someone um, can be single but uh, have many casual partners. Uh, you know, the, the whole friends with benefits line blurs things a little bit. Is, is that something that you get into in your book? Oh, about the, the varieties of being single? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the unmarried experience and looking at it through history and the present day is what I was trying to do and through my my own experience and to you know part of what I wanted to show was that being single being alone doesn't mean necessarily being lonely that the single person has all kinds of ways of being connected to other people and but because we don't have the history of single women before us because that's a kind of story that's been sidelined traditionally we don't have a lot of examples or ways of thinking or talking about who the single woman is in, instead of a stereotype hmm yeah I understand that and um, you talk about your five awakeners what are they and how did you come to them so the, the, yeah I call the five women in my book awakeners which is a term I borrowed from Edith Wharton she used it to describe the books and people who had guided her intellectual journey in in her memoir. And I I like that word a lot because it uh, is distinct from the word heroines. These Hmm. women I write about are not my heroines. They're not, um, I think that the heroine is someone who is larger than life, who is showing you ways to be that are kind of impossible or um, unrelatable. And the, the women I write about were women I had been talking with in my head for the past more than a decade and their being not heroines was crucial to my choosing them or my being drawn to them because they I I feel like you can't talk to a heroine a heroine has it all figured out a heroine is just giving you answers an awakener is showing you possibilities that you wouldn't have thought of yourself and is also someone who is more complicated or messier or someone you can have a conversation with, you know, albeit a make-believe imaginary conversation, which is what I was doing. So this is what I had been doing kind of in in my, um, you know, as a habit or a pastime during my 20s and 30s as I was navigating my life as a person, an adult person in this world, was talking to these women in my head. And so they, they are, there are five of them. There are Maeve Brennan, who was a writer for The New Yorker at Mid-Century, Neith Boyce, a 19th century journalist and author who wrote a column for Vogue magazine in the year 1898 called The Bachelor Girl about her decision to never marry. Hmm. Edith Wharton, the, the famous novelist, uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, the uh, poet from you know the early 1900s, who was very famous at the time, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman, the also 19th century feminist writer and activist. And, and what all of these women have in common is uh, a very ambivalent relationship to marriage or attachment and, and how they went about organizing their lives and their domestic arrangements is what engaged me. 
So which of these women were the first to have uh, uh, you had the with whom you had the first discussion with? Um, and at what time in your life? It sounds like these had had come at different times in your life. These uh, people who you were reading. Yes. Well, so I, I thought when I sat down to write the book, I thought that it would start with me being around age 29, turning 30 when I first found Neith Boyce. Uh, the, the journalist from who was writing a column for Vogue in the year 1898, because that's when this quote-unquote journey began for me, uh, consciously, is was with her. You know, she seeing that she had been writing in a mainstream magazine about being a happily unmarried woman, this late Victorian person, that blew my mind. I had not known that there had been a public conversation around marriage at that moment in time, and and so that's where I thought that the book started. But in fact, when I sat down to start really writing the book, I realized that Maeve Brennan, who was the mid-century New Yorker writer, she really was my first awakener, but an unconscious awakener. And I had first come across her in my late 20s, kind of mid to late 20s, when I was living in Boston and working at the Atlantic magazine. And the New Yorker ran a kind of feature on her. A couple of her books were reissued. And I just fell in love with a photograph of her. She looked so independent. There was something so resolutely autonomous about the expression in her eye. And so I immediately found one of her books, which was a collection of her column for The New Yorker called The Long-Winded Lady, which was uh, her writing out of the kind of urban Flanor tradition, but being the first female urban Flanor that I know of, wandering around the city, by herself describing what she saw. And her voice was so singular. It was the first time I had ever read a woman who was writing in the first person about herself, not in relation to somebody else, whether a husband or a parent or a child. It was really, it was just her singular point of view. And that really excited me and started me thinking about, you know, I, that's what I wanted. You know, I was beginning, you know, I was in my 20s thinking about what do I want to be when I grow up? And and what I wanted was that, was to be self-reliant, seeing the world uh, through my own worldview, knowing what that was. And so it was a very glamorous kind of fantasy for me. That's who, who Maeve Brennan was and it, for me. And it wasn't until, you know, a few years later I moved to New York City, you know, inspired in large part by Maeve Brennan. And, and, and then that's when I found Neith Boyce, who really put more of a kind of a critique or a dialogue in place for me. May really was a fantasy, and Neith was someone who had a very sophisticated critique of marriage and what it meant to be a single person, and so she created a different kind of conversation in my head. So how do these experiences from the past relate to experiences in the present day? Because obviously a lot of things have changed, but women are still often seen, as you say, in relation to other people, not just people they marry, but also parents, children, um, even jobs at this point. Um, so, so how do women now move away from that paradigm and find their own voices? Yeah, I, I mean, it's surprising, right? Like, here we are in the 21st century. In a way, this conversation that I'm having right now shouldn't even be happening. It's uh, so much has been resolved. So many gains have been made. But we still, people still do, uh, on the whole, organize their lives around marriage. And that can cause a lot of anxiety for women in particular, I, I think, from what I've gathered from talking to friends and other women in my reporting and uh and so what you know i i didn't understand for a long time why i kept being drawn to these women who were living at the turn of the last century it was just repeatedly i kept going back there and it wasn't until i sat down to really start researching the book that i started to begin to understand the conditions of that period better and in fact there are many parallels between then and now, you know, uh, at the time in, in the late 1800s, women were entering the workforce and universities in unprecedented numbers and experiencing a kind of power and self-reliance on a mass scale that had never happened before, very much like today, where we, you know, it's been, you know over the past 10, 15 years, women have surpassed men in terms of university enrollment and 
workforce presence and so forth. And so I see these, these women I'm writing about are the prototypes for today. They were dealing with the same kinds of issues about balancing intimacy and autonomy, uh, work and family. You know, these were things that they were wrestling with then that we're still wrestling with now. And it felt very useful to me, you know, after my Atlantic story came out, and that was, um, you know, generated a lot of conversation about women today and where we are now. And it was a conversation without historical context. And I wanted to show with the book that there's a long history of women thinking and talking about these things, and that it's not just a modern contemporary issue that we're looking at. It's, it's something, you know, a long, there's a long legacy. Uh, if you could talk to us a little bit about Edna St. Vincent Millay and uh, your your uh, readings with her. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, so Edna was the most famous single woman of the early 1900s, and that was back when being a poet was it really was like being a rock star. She was famous across the country, and uh, you know, also traveled around the world reading her poetry. Had a huge public profile, and she was showing women a way to be that was not a, a wife or a mother. And that was, she was a very important public image and icon. And I, growing up as a girl, I loved her poetry. And uh, I kind of, you know, forgot about her. And then as I got older, and then in my, again, in my late 20s, early 30s, when I started living by myself in the city, uh, this was around the time uh, a, a couple of biographies of her came out. And I became reacquainted with Edna and learned more about her life. And so I, I learned a lot of things. But uh, let's see, just, you know, one thing that really struck me most fundamentally about Edna St. Vincent Millay was that I had, in my imagination, she had been this uh, kind of badass, you know, swaggering, um, <laughs> femme fatale, heartbreaking, you know, cowgirl. And I would, would would kind of terrorize myself with that image as I was being a single woman in the city, feeling kind of, unsure about what I was doing. Kind know, of like a Mae West. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I thought, is this the only way to do it? Do you have to be a, like a ball buster? Do you have to have an, a, a heart of ice? <laughs> you know, is, is that how you be a single person navigating casual sex and, and all of that? And it was, uh, it was really helpful for me to to go in more deeply with Edna and realize that, you know, she wasn't like that, I don't think at all, that she was a, a deeply considerate, very passionate person who loved briefly and intensely, but was good to the people in her life when she did and lived with, with great honesty. And, you know, and that was reflected in the, you know, she went on to become married and have an open marriage, which I see was as being her way of not wanting to be someone who would cheat or be unfaithful. That you know, she knew that she was always going to be restless, would never want to be settled down, and so found an arrangement that really allowed her to live at her fullest. So, um, for Vogue, you wrote about why having an affair was the best mistake you ever made. Uh, are you willing to go into a little bit more detail on that? Well, sure. I mean, actually, it's a good segue because, um, isn't it? Because for me, so much of deciding not to become married or be a married person in my, you know, late 20s or early 30s was I, I just didn't feel ready yet. I felt like I had a lot to learn. I needed to learn how to be on my own. And I also couldn't, well, okay, so, so what I write about in the, in the Vogue essay was how I was living with my boyfriend and, and kind of thinking we would probably get married because it seemed the next obvious thing. And uh, I loved him. And then I cheated on him. And it was uh, it was, I went through a real identity crisis. I didn't know I was capable of doing that, of, of hurting somebody so much and um, and being so deceitful. It really scared me to to learn that I had that capacity. And I I felt after that, you know, like first it just felt terrible to hurt somebody I loved, to betray them. And I didn't want to be that person ever again. And I didn't know how long it would take me to be confident that I wouldn't be that person again. So I didn't want to put myself in a situation where I might be tempted to be unfaithful, which I, I guess, it, you know, when I say that all now, it sounds, you know, very youthful, I guess, you know, like the, it was, there's a, that youthful absolution or that way of throwing things down in the sand or whatever the phrase is, mm -hmm. but um, but I felt very strongly at that at that time that I wanted to be an honest person and 
for me, being an honest person meant being alone until I could trust myself absolutely. No, I can I can totally understand that. That makes a lot of sense. You just um, I think there are a lot of people who sort of say, well, to avoid temptation, you 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 have to avoid the situations that might lead to temptation. And for you, and I guess for Edna Saint Vincent Millay, that was not making promises you weren't sure you could keep. Right. Yeah. 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 We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Kate Bullock, the author of Spinster. In our starred review of your book, we say uh, that you uh, will inspire readers and especially women to think about what they want their own lives to be and also how close they are to their goals. What what do you see as some of those goals for contemporary women uh, that could be achieved just as easily or maybe more easily in singlehood? Oh, let's see. Um how to answer that. We are living at a time now where the stigmas against being alone aren't anything like what they used to be. So we have all of these unprecedented freedoms and abilities to live on our own and support ourselves. And we don't need marriage. Women don't need marriage the way that they once did. And and that doesn't mean that women shouldn't have marriage. It just means that I, I think we have more freedom romantically in in our personal lives and we allow ourselves to think there's a lot of fear-mongering still and that's you know one reason i used the word spinster as the title of the book is i i like how that word immediately broadcasts all the complicated feelings we have around who single women are you know like why does that that word it exists not as a serious word we don't use it as part of our standard vernacular when we're describing people, but it exists as a joke and a self-deprecating joke. You know, oh, you know, things aren't going well. I can't find anyone on Tinder. I'm going to end up being a lonely old spinster. So there's a way that we um, are, are kind of hanging that fear of future regret is, is, is always in place. And, and I think that can be an oppressive feeling and force people into making decisions about their lives out of fear of the future. And um, I just, in the most basic way, we are equipped now to live freely and strongly and um, independently. And, and that's something that can be celebrated and, you know, and, uh, and, and just, uh, just done. And, and I don't at all want to make this out to be a story of like the fabulous single person, because I think that's a pretty oppressive stereotype. Sure. And, you know, and nor do I want to say that this is, people should be alone for the rest of their lives and never marry at all. It, it's, it's just that, like, hello, like, we're, we're marrying later. This is what's happening. This is demographically taking place. And yet we still have a script around from a previous generation that makes us feel anxious about not being married yet or where is Mr. Right or where is the, you know, the one. And, and that it just doesn't need to be there, that there's, a, you know, a long decade of a, a person's life that is now spent alone, and that could be a really great and a time full of of great possibility in, in personal enrichment or or whatever somebody wants to pursue. So Megan Dom edited a book of essays called Selfish, Shallow, and Self-Absorbed, 16 Writers on the Decision Not to Have Kids, which you reviewed for the New York Times Book Review. And, and again, this a timely book came out the same time as yours also questioning um or or just exploring um uh, what is stereotypical women roles in society and you cite the statistic that today 19 percent of american women reach their mid-40s without ever having a child uh and you say it's a figure that has doubled in four decades tell us why why that change um absolutely it's the gains of the second wave of the women's movement that uh women have been able to live different lives, lives of, you know, less encumbered by dem- domestic obligations than ever before in the past. And so that's been just incrementally rising. Women are, have been seizing that freedom and that liberty in greater numbers. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that's my answer to that. 
And um, so, in, in after you know, either the, from the uh, time the article was published or, or your book, what has the response been to your book from both women and men? You know, all over the place. It's um, right now. I'm still in the midst of getting so much. I'm, I'm getting so much email and there are so many reviews still about the book that um, I'm so inside of the response that I've lost all perspective, I think. Um, it's really hard for me to gauge it. I haven't been able to step out of it yet and analyze it the way I can. You know, like after the Atlantic story came out, it was there was a very clear wave. At first, um, I was hearing from very angry men who were saying, who do you think you are? You, you know blah, blah, you think you're too good for marriage, et cetera. They were very threatened and angry. Um, and then I started hearing mostly, and like primarily from young women in their 20s who were saying, like writing to me as if I were an advice columnist, really, um, and looking for me to answer questions about their lives. You know, I live with my boyfriend, but I'm not sure if I want to marry him. What should I do? And then women in their 30s and 40s were writing to me and saying, thank you for making me feel less invisible. I am so happy with my life the way that it is. But people are always saying, aren't you, don't you want to find somebody? When are you going to settle down, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I was most moved by the letters I was getting from the women in their 20s because they sounded so much like me in my 20s. And I think, you know, when we're in our 20s, our whole life is stretched out before us. Everything feels so significant and dramatic. And each decision we make feels so scary and fraught. And when I was their age and, and think and feeling very ambivalent about marriage or the idea of marriage, I felt very alone in that feeling. And I didn't see any reflection of that ambivalence in the culture around me. So when I started to get those responses from those women to that article, I thought, oh, well, that, that book that I wanted to read when I was in my 20s and early 30s still hasn't been written. And apparently women still need it or else I wouldn't be getting this mail. So I'll write that book. And so now here we are, the book has come out and it's inciting a different kind of response. Um, It's because the book is so much more personal than the Atlantic article was that um, it's, people are responding very personally and very heatedly. And I, you know, I deliberately put my own life alongside the lives of, of my five awakeners in the hopes that a reader would be able to read me the way I'd read these women's lives and kind of agree with me or disagree with me. I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to show my own ambivalence and complexity and confusion so that a reader could be having a conversation with me. So once again, like just, just as I didn't want heroines, I didn't want to pose myself as a heroine. And uh, so anyway, so that's certainly happening. People are agreeing with me and disagreeing with me. <laughs> so it's weird. You set out to do something and then it happens and it feels different when it actually happens. So right now there's a huge conversation going on about marriage that in some ways is very separate from this, um, the conversation on same-sex marriage. And as part of that conversation, I've heard a lot of queer people saying, you know, let's not forget that we can also be single. Let's not forget that marriage is not necessarily the, the be-all and, and end-all. Um, do you see any, any parallels there? Have you uh, sort of looked into that aspect of marriage, or have you really been focusing on straight women and the pressure to marry a man and, as you say, settle down? Yeah, I mean, I've been writing out of a very heteronormative place just because that's where I live. But uh, one of my conscious thoughts when I was writing the Atlantic article was, huh, you know, we've got this huge public conversation around marriage right now because of same-sex marriage, and this is great. This conversation needs to be had. But I think in a way it's letting uh, opposite sex people off the hook. Like they're not, there's not enough of a critique around what marriage is. Uh, in, in the most classic male-female kind of sense. And so I wanted to stir up a little bit of conversation around that. And, yeah, I think it's been it's a very interesting conundrum, though, for those gay people who don't want to get married and are now feeling that pressure to marry now that it's a possibility. So they're going through all kinds of feelings and experiences that straight people are, have, are, have been going through for a long time. So I think it's, it's fascinating how it's going back and forth how there are a lot of similarities and differences here. 
I, I have friends in Ireland and a joke that I saw going around Twitter in like three or four different formats was after the, the marriage referendum. The, the next day, there were a lot of gay men and women avoiding their mother's eyes at the breakfast table because, of course, now the next question is, and when are you going to get married? Uh, <laughs> so, so it is very much, you know, the, the layering on of all of these cultural expectations. But from a historical perspective, if you want to find the sort of stealth lesbians in the historical record, you use the term single women. Um, Those those are the women who lived with other women and passed as, as singles. So, so there's, I'm just interested by all these, these layers of complexity. Oh yeah. And right. And the, the, the single woman, it, she conceals so many different realities. I, and I love that you're speaking to that right now, that she can be the, the lesbian living with another, or she can be the woman who lives alone who, and has many lovers, or she can be the woman who lives alone and is celibate by choice mm-hmm. or not by choice. <laughs> but there's a, yeah, a whole world of in, kind of possibility and inscrutability. And recently I, I saw um, Alison Bechdel was saying, I think this was in the Times, she was talking about, oh, you know, now I, I kind of liked before that I couldn't get married because it made me feel special. Hmm. Or that, you know, we we were renegades. We we lesbians were living outside. I'm, I'm totally misquoting and paraphrasing her, but the idea was, we you know, we lived outside of the social order, and we were cool because of that. And now we're just like everybody else. We can get married. And so I like how she was speaking to the, the kind of specialness of the single person. So, uh, what did you discover about yourself while in the process of of writing the book? And I guess I'm wondering, you know, did your thoughts change or become more nuanced from the time you wrote the first article to writing the book? Oh, it's a great question. Um, you know, it's like I've been I've been thinking about these topics for so long, and in. I'm just one of those people, you know, I'm just always thinking and questioning in my head all the time. It's like a conversation that never ends. And so uh, I just continue on doing that. I'm not, I, I don't think I'm ever going to reach any conclusive answers. And part of the book, you know, going in public with this really is, is it's a different level of living with my own ambivalence and ambiguity is more at, at this moment in time it's very uncomfortable to it's one thing to live with so much ambivalence and ambiguity in, in my own head or in my own personal life <laughs> but then to have it be there on the public record is a strange place to be and so I'd, I mean I'd say my thoughts are changing all the time but not in any kind of specific linear way that I could um, announce I guess um, you know, so God, sorry, I'm giving a really lame. <laughs> no, <laughs> to ask. no, not at all. You're fine. Yeah, I was, you know, but I, I mean, I'd say, you know, one thing that's very strange about the writing of, you know, real life versus a book is that while I was writing the book, I was getting involved in a relationship that turned out to be the longest lasting one of my adult life so far, you know, since last leaving my last significant relationship when I was 29 years old. So, I, you know, I spent a decade living alone and thinking about the single experience and then started writing a book about it and then fell in love with somebody. And so was now writing about the single experience from a different perspective instead of strictly from within it. Mm -hmm. And are you still in a relationship with this person? I am. Yeah. I just want to say, what, what are you working on now? Oh, what am I working on now? Really just kind of nothing still. (laughs) Is that true? I mean, I just did a couple of freelance pieces. I just did a piece for Cosmo on single mothers by choice. That's in the current June issue. And then still I'm just kind of recovering from having finished the book and put it out into the world and, and slow, slow. I'm hoping this vacation I'm on will help me kind of calm down and figure out what comes next. Um, Perhaps being an advice columnist. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've been talking with Kate Bullock, and you can find her book, Spinster, in stores right now. Kate, thank you so much for taking time out of your vacation to join us. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot takes us back to BookCon, so stay tuned. I am Mario Marazziti, author of 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today fan favorite PW editorial director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about BookCon. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. Hi, Mark. Hello, Jim. So we last spoke with you. We were right about uh, to go into, well, we had just done the first day of uh, BEA. We had another day afterwards, and then we had BookCon. Let's talk about BookCon. Yeah, well, as uh, I hope most of you listeners know, BookCon is uh, the consumer-facing part of uh, BEA, started by Read Exhibitions, which does BEA as well, um, last year. And again, it's it's um, to draw in consumers and readers into the publisher's uh, realm. And so the crowd we saw seemed to be a little bit younger than uh, than the crowd for for uh, uh, Book Expo. And what was the feeling of the show? I mean, we had two days. It was the first day we had two days of it. Right. Well, it's very interesting in the way it's evolved really quickly. When they started it last year, uh, they were expecting a crowd to be your, maybe your typical your typical reader, which is you know a baby boomer probably a little bit older female um but what they got were lots and lots of uh teens and tweens and 20 somethings so this year this is really what they uh they program the whole the whole package for and that's and and once again that's the audience they got so is it mostly ya novels and celebrities it's a lot of YA, YA novels and a lot of celebrities right. yeah the, the, the key you know kickoff was uh, mindy cowley and bj novak who talked about their respective books and also uh, did confirm that they're working together on, on a project. You know, and that was sold out. Um, you know, standing room only, a thousand people showed up. Mm-hmm. And attendance overall was 18,000, which wow. was uh, up uh, over the 10,000 they had last year. And last year they had to cap it because the crowds were, were getting a little dangerous. Wow. Wow. And just to give us a comparison, what was the official number, do we know, for Book Expo? That hasn't come in yet, but I'm sure it'll be somewhere between twenty and 25,000. Wow. You know, and, so and, yeah. Pretty th- similar in size now. Right, yeah. And again, to be clear, you know, BEA is the trade professional right. arm of it, and uh, right. BookCon is the, the consumer of it. And yeah, it really has grown. And it's actually um, created something of a, a problem for, for Reed because it's become pretty popular in in New York in two years. But next year, BEA, and by extension, BookCon, is going to Chicago. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. What what happened with the Comic-Con, some of which are also run by Reed, um, is that each city just developed its own. But in this case, it's kind of a a floating convention that moves from place to place from year to year now. Uh, And BEA has been in New York a long time, but... Uh, what's going on with Chicago? Is there going to be an extended residency there the way that BEA was in New York for a while? Or is it going to be one year there and then moving somewhere else? Do we know? Uh, the current plans call for it to move back to New York in 2017. Hmm. But, I mean, you're right. The problem is, and Bill Kahn Reed executives are looking at it now, there was such a positive reaction from the consumers and the publishers to how Bill New York worked out that they're looking for a way to maybe do something next year in New York. But they're also aware that it's unlikely that the publishers would support some a major con in Chicago and another one in New York. Right. Because the expense of it. I mean, so you would have right. one that would be a day or so maybe in Chicago and then another one here. So publishers would have to send people and booths and books and everything to both shows. So it would right, be kind of right. expense. And even though BookCon was, you know, been a success so far, it has always been tied in its brief history to BEA. So that was the rationale for taking it out to Chicago because the publishers are going to be there and they would follow the same model they used last mm-hmm. year in New York was the, peop- the publishers who want to stay at BookCon can, and those who don't want to can go home. Because it's going to be, BEA will be Wednesday to Friday, and then uh, Saturday will be the BookCon show. Does it seem to have the same spirit as, say, Comic-Con, which which seems to, I don't know, feel more of a pop-up, uh, an event, or like it can be a local event in many big cities? Well, uh, well, readers may know 
pretense that they they definitely want to make right. BookCon the Comic-Con of books, right. especially after what happened last year, and I'm sure this year would only reinforce that. But whether they can take it around to different cities... You know, it was interesting. We'll have a story in Monday's edition of Publishers Weekly. We're talking to some publishers who actually do support the idea, at least in concept. Right. Um, you know, I think somebody made the comment like, well, you know, readers don't, don't only live in New York City. Right. So, you know, it's fair to take it around and maybe get, you know, f- give other people a flavor of all this. Right. But what publishers say, what publishers put their money up to do are two, <laughs> two separate things. Yeah, especially when the, you know, the publishing is still centered in New York City, even though there's great and many uh, publishers elsewhere. I mean, most of them, most of the publishing houses would have to travel. Right. And the big houses obviously are centered in New York. Um, and they've supported a book on pretty strongly. So, you know, it's a question. I mean, everybody's trying to grapple with it. You know, we're only a week out. Um, and I'm not sure if the, su- the success again caught everybody by surprise. I mean, read executives thought they would get fifteen to twenty thousand people at BookCon, and they, they got know, right in the middle. They yeah, got in the middle. So um, it's something they're really, in some ways, struggling with because they like to keep some New York momentum going, but they're aware that I mean they know what the publishers are like. Right, right. So it's it's what would they support? Right. It, yeah. it was interesting to me going to the question of whether it felt like Comic-Con. I've not been to a Comic-Con, um, but I noticed that Reed was pulling out all the Comic-Con-style signage for BookCon. So you had signs saying cosplay mm. is not consent. You had a big, big banner right in the front of the hall uh, with the anti-harassment policy that was very detailed that and that was as far as i can tell the same policy that they have at comic cons right so they were clearly prepared for there to be a lot of fans and creators mingling people dressed as characters from their favorite books uh and and that sort of thing i thought that was very interesting i didn't see anyone in in costume i was going to wandering the exhibit floor but i didn't get down to where the authors were so there may have been some some cosplay down there yeah uh, I think it would be really interesting to to get that kind of vibe going for for a book convention. I mean, certainly, you know, the the literary conventions have, for the most part, lagged. I think the only one that's really sort of homegrown that compares to the the big comic cons is something like Dragon Con, and that's become as much of a media convention as it is a science fiction and fantasy and what's convention. And what's attendance like for that? Tens of thousands. Really? Yeah, it's uh, wow. it's it's pretty pretty substantial. Right. Uh, I mean, I don't have exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's it's big. Yeah. Um, and you know, quite quite a big deal to to put that on now, um, but. You know, when I when I go to Worldcon, the World Science Fiction Convention, we're like, yeah, four thousand people. This is huge, <laughs> and it is huge compared to the local conventions right. that might draw uh, eight hundred. Yeah. So um, talking about twenty thousand people, like that's that's a big jump, and that's a big audience that yeah. I could see publishers might really want to reach. But, it, but it's interesting. Uh, a couple of things. You know, we talked to some of the people online when they were waiting to get in and in the, in the uh, hall itself. And some people have flown from Brazil. I mean, it's kind of an exception. But wow. right. people did come from well beyond uh, the New York area. Uh, but getting back to the publishers, um, you know, again, if you want to compare it to Comic-Con, the exhibitors there and a lot of publishers do go to Comic-Con. They sell stuff like crazy. Yes. So at BookCon... There's still some reticence about this, what to sell or should they sell, um, because I think we might have mentioned before, one of the problems is BEA, which they have most of the material is for, is for, for the fall. They're not really prepared to sell it. Um, fans want something current, so you have to, right. it's a whole new right. set of issues. Right. So you really do end up having to bring twice the stuff Anyway, yeah. I mean, I, I saw friends there who run a small press, and they said that the books they were selling at, at BookCon were the same books they'd been giving away at BEA. They just, <laughs> just put stickers on them. Yeah, suddenly <laughs> this is $15. That's a good idea. <laughs> uh, but those were all current titles, as, as you say. They, they weren't uh, advanced copies yeah. of books that are coming out in November. Right. No, you're right. And it's, again, it's really interesting. Publishers really haven't got their arms around it uh, about what they want to do. I mean, they're thrilled to see 18,000 people, especially a young crowd, you know, sure. be it women or men. They just, 
yeah. the big initiative, of course, is to keep young people reading in this digital age. So to see that many really enthusiastic people is, you know, gratifying. So are they giving out books or are they for purchase? Well, it has been a mix so far. Yeah. Um, they've, some publishers have been giving stuff away. Some have been selling. Some have been doing a mix. Um, I think they would probably like to sell, but... That's where the hesitancy... Well, they don't want to compete with the retailers. There's right. that sort of thing. They're not... The bigger publishers, it's probably easier for Rose's friends to sell than for Hachette to get something lined yeah. up. Mm-hmm. So this is right. how we sell stuff. Um, I mean, so. the publishers don't generally do direct sales. That's that's a relatively yeah. new thing to to just sell your own books without without a middleman. So even if you're sitting there with with your little square <laughs> things, so you can swipe a credit card. Where's the credit card go? You right. know, no, no, where, yeah. where, what account does the money go right. into? That's that's a big accounting question or that maybe publishers get a, haven't confronted. Or maybe get a handful of uh, indie publishers who bid on on these, <laughs> <laughs> and then we have FIFA all over again. Oh boy! But, uh, <laughs> don't, but, but, well, don't you know. Too complicated, Mark. When we're talking about Hachette, you know, which is, you know, they, they had deputized word book from uh, you know, Brooklyn to uh, to sell the books for. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's, you know, I don't know, don't know how many customers would go from Hachette's booth downstairs to go buy the book when you're here. Right. So I don't know if that's the most efficient way. Or you have one of those mobile credit card machines that you see throughout Europe that you just handheld credit card machines and they're just all going to the store so you have them at the booth too i should i should uh maybe uh <laughs> you should consult. Discuss, i should consult yeah yeah <laughs> so there's, there's lots of different aspects to it yeah. that as we said uh are going to evolve and a lot of people didn't believe that they would actually move Bacon to chicago they thought they would somehow keep it in new york hmm. but you know as we said uh, i think they realize or at least are pretty wary that the publishers still want the BEA book on connection. Right. right. And, you know, it's also nice to give small presses outside of New York City a, a chance. Like, I'm sure there are yeah. mid- Midwest publishers who would love to be able to drive their books over to BEA and to BookCon instead yeah. of flying, flying them. To, I mean, yeah. the, the same rationale applies to BookCon as applies to Book Expo. Right. Uh, no, that, for sure. In that regard. Yeah. No, I think you're right. So it's uh you know it's it's been a it's been an I think eye opening experience for for the industry to yeah. uh see <laughs> to see uh you know the, the kind of uh reception they've had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for coming in to talk to us about it. It's it's good to see how things are evolving even if a lot of this is kind of a a wait and see. Right. Yeah. yeah. And we'll see how it goes, how it really plays out in the next few months, see what really happens. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm and sure. next year. Yes. Yeah. It's going to be very be interesting to watch. All right. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Jim. Anytime. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Sarah Fort, author of Starry Kitchen, Bowl and Spoon, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. And we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 